So, some churches put flowers up. I, I thought I'd just go for a little bit different t- today, but uh, I, I quite like it. But um, anyway, we'll see. Um, the, uh, I'll just leave that down there. How you all doing? Well? Yeah? Cool. Do you like the new arrangement? I thought I'd just messing up a little bit for you. It's just uh, didn't want to get you too, into too much habit of sitting in the same place. So uh, we just thought I'd just throw things around a bit. So next week, anything could happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Hold on. That's it. <laughs> right, we are in Mark in chapter 11. Um, if you want to flip over there for a moment, and uh, we're just going to read a few passages, and hopefully uh, my beautiful flower arrangement will become clear as the story develops. Um, Mark chapter 11, and we are... Actually, let's, I'm just going to pick it up in verse 11. This is where we left off last week. So it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Verse 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he took, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard what he heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and to, and began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd were amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning... As they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have, and you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Let's just pray. Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to look to you. But Father, we pray now as we we come to your word, that you would teach us from your word, that we would hear, that we would understand that you would change us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. They say that a picture speaks a thousand words. And Mark, in this story, is once again just creating a picture. He's, he's building just a, an illustration, I guess. And over these next three chapters, so chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, we're going to see Mark paint the picture of the Lord of the temple. Now, every picture has got a focal point, And I guess... The focal point of this picture perhaps comes in verse 11 of chapter 11, where we see Jesus. He is looking around the temple. He is scrutinizing. He is watching. He's seeing everything. In fact, he sees the corruption that is going on in his temple. And it's a picture of Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who's been sent from God. In fact, he reveals to us his authority as prophet, as priest, as king. Now, last week, as Kumbalani shared with us, as he spoke um, uh, from verses 1 to 11, we saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem as God's prophesied king. But you will have noticed by now that this is no ordinary king. I hope you've noticed that. He comes in meekness. And lowliness, but never, never mistake his meekness for weakness. Because Jesus, he was not weak. He truly is the king above every king. But Jesus also shows his authority as prophet. As he speaks out God's word and as he speaks to this fig tree and what he says comes true. You do know how you know whether a prophet is sent from God or not, don't you? You just wait. (laughs) You just wait to see if actually what he or she says actually comes true. Then you're pretty sure. And this in many ways is perhaps... It's actually an odd story. It's a very strange sort of story. Jesus, he's hungry, as you get sometimes. He's walking along the road. At a distance, he sees a fig tree, and it looks all leafy and full of greenery. And even though it's out of season, he expects something from it. But as he gets a little bit closer to this fig tree, he discovers that despite all the leaves, there is no fruit. It looks good, but it's useless. It looks all green and leafy, but there is no fruit whatsoever. And Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, the next morning, the disciples are coming past the same fig tree, and they, they look at it, and... This fig tree is dried up, it is shriveled, it's dead. No one will ever eat from this tree again. 
Now, was Jesus just being callous and, um, and spiteful? Well, actually, we've just read, or last week, we looked at verse 1 to 11, we've seen Jesus come in as just showing his kingly grace, full of meekness, full of... So what's, what's going on in this story? What's changed? Well, you see, Mark, Mark loves to... Mark loves to sort of play with, with his words and play with his, his illustration. In fact, he, he loves just to split stories up just to give us a hint of the true meaning of this story. So Mark, in his typical fashion, he uses this sort of sandwich method of telling stories. So in verses 12 to 14 and in verses 20 to 22, it's all about the fig tree, but the real meat... The real center of this sandwich is when Jesus goes into the temple and turns over all the tables and throws out the money lenders and gets rid of all those who are dishonoring God's place of worship. And Jesus' curse of this fig tree is a prophetic act. These stories are integrally linked. This is a prophetic act. You see, Israel, God's people, like this fig tree, they show the outer signs of life and of greenery, and they look leafy on the outside, but when people come to them hungry, spiritually hungry, what do they get? Nothing. There's no fruit. There's no fruit. Just emptiness. And both these situations, Jesus' action seems somewhat harsh. After all, what has this poor fig tree done to hurt anybody? But Jesus has judged this fruitless tree in the same way that he will judge the fruitless and prayerless commercialization of the temple. And one day, it too will face the judgment of God. And listen, this story is, make us, is made to make us stop and think. Because the question over spiritual fruitfulness is an immensely serious one. One that we dare not ignore. In fact, history will prove that the Jewish people do ignore Jesus' warning here. And in a number of years, they will be exposed to the withering judgment of God. And their temple, it was destroyed. And we need to learn that Jesus means what he says, and there are no exceptions. And one day, each, each one of us will stand before God. And God will judge us. In fact, God will ask us the question, did you listen to my son? Did you ignore my son Jesus? 
And if the answer to that question is no, God's judgment will come against us. But the gospel is a gospel of hope. We've heard it already. And Jesus is our hope when we turn to him. But Jesus is not just king. He's not just prophet, but Jesus is priest. And we see as Jesus arrives in the temple, he demonstrates his authority as God's priest. See, this this temple has been turned into a marketplace. It's, it's just, it's, it's become full of dishonest, dishonest commercialization, just exploitation of the poor. This place that should have been a place of prayer, a place that proclaimed the glory of God to this world, had become just a religious shopping center. In fact, it was simply, for many people, just a shortcut through the city. That's all they thought of it. It had ceased to be a place where God's name is honored, where God is glorified. Truth is, had these priests any sense of dignity, of any sense of authority, they would have dealt with this temple. They would have cleaned it up a long time ago, but it took God's appointed priest, God's man, it took Jesus to come in to clean this temple up, to bring it back to its original purpose. And Jesus could not tolerate anything less than God's name being praised, than God's name being honored in this place, even though, humanly speaking, it would cost him his life. And it did. I guess there are few more awe-inspiring passages in all of Scripture. And we see Jesus' holy anger burning with frightening purity here as he single-handedly cleans this temple up, makes it fit for his original purpose. At the same time, we also see him fulfilling some of the prophetic words from Malachi chapter 3 as Jesus reveals himself as the one true priest come to clean his temple And through Jesus' actions, in fact, through the way that Mark tells this story, listen, we are left beyond a shadow of doubt that this is the Lord who has come to his temple. And Jesus, he's still the one true priest over his church. That hasn't changed. Perhaps the question that we should be asking ourselves is whether the church has learnt its lesson yet. And Jesus, Jesus is still carefully scrutinizing. He's looking. He's watching. He's observing. He sees everything. In fact, we only have to look in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, and we see Jesus ascended in all his glory, standing in the, in, in, in the glory of heaven, robed in his priestly garments before he speaks to the seven churches of Asia. I haven't time to go into the details of that story now, but do read it, do have a look at it. But Jesus is scrutinizing his temple, his church, 
He's still urging repentance and prayer. He is seeking spiritual fruit. He's longing for true worshipers. An empty religion, it's an offense to God. So what does he find when he looks at your heart? I wonder, what does he see when he looks at our church? Is it just routine and habit? Is it, does it look sort of quite nice from the outside, full of greenery, full of life, but lacking the fruit that Jesus is so much looking for? Is the Lord pleased with you because he sees a genuine love? Or is he angry that we are simply all show? No substance. An empty religion is everywhere, never far from us. In fact, it's easy for any of us just to fall in love with my way of thinking, with my way of doing stuff. We can just get caught up in that rather with God's way. In fact, Jesus, in, in chapter 7, if you remember back just a few chapters, he talks about human religious traditions and sometimes things that are even based on good biblical principles that can so easily become the enemy of God's Word. And we must, we must guard our hearts. And we must also never miss the just the strength of this illustration. Because as Jesus stands and as he looks at this tree, withered and dead, he then turns to the disciples and he says to them, he says, now you have faith in God and pray. Is he saying to them, do you want to look like that? Is that, is that how you want to look? like a dead and withered tree, will then have faith in God. Pray. And Jesus, he calls us away from faith, from fruitlessness, and he calls us to seek the Father with all of our hearts, expressed in fervent and faithful prayer. But how does that look? Well, in verse 23, Jesus moves from one curious illustration to another one. This time, it's a mountain being cast into the sea. And I guess to understand this, we need to understand the context of what Jesus is saying here for this illustration to work. And there is deep significance here. It's obviously about prayer at one level. But actually, the mountain that Jesus is referring to here is actually the mountain that they're standing right in front of. The disciples are looking at it. This is Mount Zion. It's got the temple at the top of it gleaming in all its glory. In fact, only in a couple of chapters, the disciples, they'll be saying how permanent, how, un, how indestructible this temple looks. And Jesus wants them to understand that there's only one thing in this world that does not change. There's only one thing, in fact, one person who is unchangeable, and that is God himself. Everything else will change. Even mountains, even temples, history proves the point. 
And Jesus wants the disciples to realize that God is in control. And that when we come to him and we pray to him, when we ask him that God hears and God answers prayers, that God is the God who does the impossible, the things that just seem crazy, the mountains that we cannot move, the things that we cannot shift, God does. Not us. God does. And this is a serious challenge. Because God is able to do more than all we can ask or imagine. That's what Ephesians says. Do believe it. Dr. Helen Roosevelt, Roosevelt, sorry, missionary in Zaire, she tells this story. She talks about how a mother came into the mission statement, mission, um, the mission station, and she died as she was just giving birth to her premature baby. They looked around to try and find some um, way of putting together some sort of incubator to try and hold this together. Um, so they looked for a sort of hot water bottle, but all they had was, well, actually it was just beyond repair. So they called all the children in the orphanage together to get them to begin to pray, to pray for the premature baby, to pray for, pray for the daughter, or for the, for the sister, sorry. And one of the little girls come for, came forward and, and she begins to pray, and her prayer goes something like this. She says, Dear God, please send us a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because the baby will be dead. And dear God, please send a doll for her sister. Amen. That afternoon, a parcel arrives from England. And as they begin to open this parcel and underneath a pile of clothes, there is a hot water bottle. And when the little girl realizes the hot water bottle is in there, she rushes over and she begins to search through everything. And she says, look, if God can do that, if God can provide a hot water bottle, there's going to be a doll in here as well. And sure enough, there was. And God had answered the prayer of this girl. And five months earlier, a group of women in a church somewhere in England had put together a package and God had encouraged them to put in a hot water bottle and a doll. And God answered prayer. Now, I know many of you could tell similar stories of God doing things in sometimes little ways, in sometimes simple ways, but the God who does that, the God who provides hot water bottles and dolls, is the God who moves mountains. He's the God who changes lives. He is the God who does the impossible. Do you believe it? And Jesus is putting in these last few verses a little equation together that goes something like this. No prayer equals no power and no fruit. No prayer equals no power and no fruit. 
And that seems to be how Jesus is applying this to the disciples. Listen, and if you want an image of what Jesus sees when he looks at a prayerless person, the image that you need to keep in your mind is of a dead, withered tree. And you don't want to look like that. You don't want to look like that. You want to live and be filled with the power and the fruit of God. See, where there is no power, sorry, where there is no prayer, there is no power, and eventually there is no presence of God. Only sin and evil. In fact, the response of the priests and the scribes only prove this point because we can see the true state of their heart, the evil and the sin that lies within them because as soon as Jesus confronts them, what do they do? They go scurrying off and they begin to plot his death. And as Jesus teaches here on prayer, we see that Fruitlessness comes from prayerlessness, but prayerlessness comes from an unforgiving heart. That's what verse 25 says. It says, when you stand to pray, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And Jesus says that you will not pray when you hold a grudge, when you hold bitterness. In fact, you yourself will not be forgiven. To put it more bluntly, if that's possible... When you refuse to forgive others, when you refuse to repent of the anger and the hatred in your heart, the result will be that you will remain angry and bitter and prayerless and fruitless. In fact, you will become a little bit like this tree. But if you want to be fruitful, repenting and forgiving is the first step to a fruitful, prayer-filled life. So how do we respond to this? Tell you what, this preparing this thing has smacked me in the face, <laughs> if I'm honest. It's a hard one. I have been severely challenged this week about the time I spend in prayer. And I believe stuff needs to change. In my life, I can't speak for you guys. But we need, we need to pray. And it, it, starts, it starts with repentance. It's, it's saying sorry. It's, it's forgiving and 
being forgiven. Listen, Jesus Christ, he's done everything. He has, he has paid the price. We, we come to him. We've sang it. We've said it. We come to him, the one who died on the cross, who's taken our sins, who's paid the ultimate price. He has made forgiveness possible for every one of you. So receive his forgiveness and forgive. The second thing, ask God to give you the faith to believe and to pray. Only God can do that within us. His spirit just bubbling up inside of us. And the third thing, so obvious, pray. Pray to the one who can hear and can answer your prayers. Pray to God alone, the God who does the impossible. And as, as you pray with your life rooted in Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit, listen, God will begin to produce much fruit in your life. He'll change you. He'll change this church. Dr. Wilbert Chapman often told this story about his experiences when the, the first time, in fact, he ever became a, a pastor in the church. He was a young, young guy. He was called to a church in Philadelphia. And after his first sermon, one of the elderly men, gentlemen in the, in the congregation, came to him and said to him, you're a bit young to be the pastor of this church. <laughs> good, good start. But you preach the gospel. I'm going to help you. Dr. Chapman wondered, how is he going to help me? And the old man continued. He says, I am going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that that the Holy Spirit is going to be upon you every time you preach. In fact, two other people have already committed to pray with me. And the three of them began to gather to pray before the service. And three became ten, and ten became twenty, and twenty became fifty, and fifty became two hundred, and two hundred people would gather before every service to pray for their pastor, to pray that God would fill him with the Spirit, that God's Spirit would be upon him every time he preached. Dr. Chapman writes, he says, it was a joy to preach. In fact, I said, as I went into the pulpit, I just felt the anointing of God to answer the prayers of those who had so faithfully prayed for me. And the result was that we saw 1,100 people added to our church through conversion in a three-year period. Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit as a result of faithful prayer. So what do we do with that? God has given us all we need in his word by his Spirit He tells us what to do. But I, for one, 
I'm not sure I do it. I, for one, need to pray more, to seek God more, to pray. We've, we've heard it prayed and mentioned and, and spoken about. The world around us needs Jesus. It is that simple. And Jesus is the answer. I know most of you believe it, but will we live it? Let's stand together.